This is one of those times when we just didn't get to everything that I wanted to know in one segment. So thanks for coming back. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. It was, uh, I get bored with what they call drunkologues, what it used to be like, but I wasn't bored last time. I thought that was awesome. Well, we ran out of time. So what happened and what's it like now? Very interested in New York in the time you were finishing up your stay there and in your uh, going to California to get sober. What's that? Can can you talk about that? Sure. I, um, I, you know, they talk about, you know, alcoholism or addiction as being fun and then fun with problems and then just problems. And I was at the problems. Everything was just fucked up. My life was a mess. I couldn't keep all the plates spinning. I was robbing Peter to pay Paul and living on somebody else's sofa. That was just sort of life. And one day was supposed to be payday. I got the, I went to work all excited because I was going to be able to buy scotch and weed. And paychecks came out and mine was for zero dollars because the feds and the state and the bank that I worked for and had an expense account with had all, you know, conspired in my mind to take everything from me. And so the check was for nothing. And I just kind of thought, fuck. Yeah. So I, you know, I did what we, what we do. I went back to the place I was staying, scraped together enough weed to do a bong hit, you know, wow. drank something brown. Don't remember what it was. Watching TV and a commercial came on and that was back in the days before you could zoom by them. And so I reached over and picked up a magazine on the coffee table and opened it up and there was an ad that said, do you drink too much? Do you do too many drugs? Do you think you might be HIV positive? If yes, call this number. And I picked up the phone, called the number, a guy wow. called Brian answered. And I just said, yes to all your questions. And we spoke for probably another hour none of which I remember. And at the end, I had just said, okay, you know, I'll go mm -hmm. into rehab. And I assumed I would be, you know, in New York. And he said, oh, no, no, no. You're going to rehab in Los Angeles. I said, I, how is that going to happen? I, you know, I can't afford it. He said, get to the airport. There'll be a ticket waiting for you. And all you have to do is, oh my God. you know, give them a give them a code where he said, all you have to do is show them your driver's license. And I kind of laughed and they said, I haven't had a valid driver's license in years. And he said, okay, there'll be a code word. Give them the code word. And this was, you know, before Amazing. The, the Twin Towers. So I showed up at the airport a week later and said, hi, I'm Barry and code word recovery. And they were like, okay, here's your ticket. And I got on a plane and I flew to, flew to Los Angeles where I didn't know anybody. And which is better. Yeah. That's better. Yeah, absolutely. And no escape. No escape. Yeah. And I, you know, there I was. So I just kind of thought, okay, you know, I'm just, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. I don't know mm -hmm. what else to do. This seems like a good option because it gets me out of, you know, everything that I've been doing. And even if it's just a 30 day, you know, sort of, you know, spin dry, it's better <laughs> than nothing. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So got in plane and I flew to... Los Angeles, and I ended up staying there. What year? Uh, March 8th of 1995. Hmm. I got thrown into a hospital in California, in Marina Del Rey, uh -huh. near, near LA, in 92, and it stuck. And you, you, it stuck for you, right? It did. I remember, you know, for the first or second day, they did the standard, look to your left, look to your right. A year from now, only one of you is going to be here. And I just thought at the time, fuck you and fuck you. It's going to be me. Mm -hmm. I felt done. 
And I just sort of thought, I'll do anything you tell me to. You know, I just, I, because I was out of answers. I didn't know what to do. I just thought, somebody please just tell me what to do. And it was great because they said, okay, you wake up at six. You go to, you know, meditation from 6 until 6.30. You have breakfast at 6.40. You know what I mean? Everything was scheduled. Oh, I know. And I just thought, this is perfect. I ended up being there for, I was supposed to be there 28 days. I ended up being there for like 35 or 36. I see. And then was going to go back to New York. And they kind of said, why? I said, well, I live there. And I said, well... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay. Uh-huh. Do you still know drug dealers? Do you still know bartenders? Do you still, you know, and I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Said, and well, you had those fat paychecks rolling in. Right. And they said, why don't you just stay here for a while? And I couldn't think of a good reason not to. So I just said, all right. Well, how'd you get your footing coming out of uh, that situation? <laughs> I lived in a halfway house for a while. And, you know, it was right around the corner from a what they call an Alano club. And yeah. so I used to go there. What What, what town? In uh, Silver Lake in uh, oh, Los Angeles. Okay. Yeah. yeah. The AT Center. And they had meetings starting at six in the morning and all the way up till midnight. And there was always donuts and always coffee and always people to bum cigarettes off of. Okay. And it was literally a five minute walk from where I was staying. So I just went because I had nothing else to do. Yep. And after, I don't know, another three months, it was sort of time to move on. And so I rented an apartment with another friend. Two weeks in, he relapsed and things got ugly for a while. And then I ended up getting my own place and just sort of went from there. But started, you know, all over again, nothing like was going to out of the closet to buy clothes because I had, you know, nothing. Everything was in New York. That's, just, that's, a, that's a chain, like a, yeah, like like a, a, a used, used clothing store. Exactly. Yeah, yeah I know that place. And, you know, I just sort of started again. I remember my first apartment was like a reconverted garage, had a bed, and a. I eventually got a TV, no refrigerator, so I had a... But you were sober. I was sober. That's different. Yeah, it was awesome. It was, yeah. it was, I loved it. You know, it was the first time that I felt good about myself, you know, went to sleep instead of passing out, um, didn't have to wake up in the morning and wonder, you know, what I had done, who I had offended, yeah. you know, any of that. Just to connect the dots though, you had, because we didn't talk about this in the first episode, you had a pretty good, uh, Tau side appearance is good life in New York for a minute. Oh yeah. Oh. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I... I made more money than, you know, all of, the, all of my friends. I was the guy that had the apartment that you could come and crash in if you needed a place to stay or if you were hungry. It was just sort of like the where the kids went. Made a lot of money, and life was really good for several years. And Broadway and concerts and black cars around town and all of that sort of thing. Got and it. then slowly we weren't paying the bills, and we were bouncing the checks, and... All of that started to happen, and then things just went. Did you have a growing sense inside that, like the imposter syndrome, that I know this looks good, but, you know, what's happening inside? <sighs> yes and no. I mean, I always knew that I was, you know, well, not always, but I, I knew I was an alcoholic for three or four years before I did anything about it, and I mm-hmm. sort of copped the fuck you, I'm, it's not a problem, don't judge me, that, you know, sort of thing. But all the while knowing, like, oh, it is a problem. I just, I don't know if I'm ready to do anything about it or what I would do anyhow. 
And that was the period of time when I... No, no recovery meetings. You just saw that magazine. Oh, yeah. That was the first. Okay. That was the first. Uh-huh. You know? Amazing. And I just, I'd never, I mean, I didn't even know that it was going to be, a you know, what kind of a program it was going to be, if it was going to be, it was just rehab. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay. Not that it matters, but had you accumulated insurance? Is that how you were able to... Uh, back in the day, yeah. Okay, I, had, yeah. I worked for a big bank, and so I had good insurance through them. And okay. They just kind of said, we'll, you know, we'll work it out. I, too, got thrown into a place. Intervention. I didn't see the ad in the magazine. For me, it was an intervention with three people there. When I went into this 28-day inpatient, followed by a, a halfway house, mm -hmm. sober living. Looking back, seems like you and I caught the heyday of interventions and 28-day inpatient and yep. sober living when I got sober at that time, 92. That story was very common. You'd hear a lot of that in meetings, and I don't hear that in meetings oh, yeah. today. And Well, you'd hear a lot of it, and you'd also hear a lot of judgment about it. You'd hear a lot of people say things like, <sighs> oh, yeah, well, you know, you... You bought a you know fifteen thousand dollar big book, or you you know you had to go to rehab. I just picked myself up and went to a meeting, and I thought, well, you know, fuck you. It doesn't matter how I get here; it just matters that I get here. My experience was my experience. Los Angeles at that time, I remember this. I remember that there were a lot of young people. I mean, teenagers. I was thirty two, and but you heard their story and you're like, yeah, you're in. <laughs> There's no question. You, you, you've done enough. Let's, yeah. let's, let's, let's. Well, and there are all the apocryphal more. stories about, you know, like June B in Los Angeles who got sober when she was 13. And my partner now had a roommate who uh, was, I think, 16 or 17 at the time, you know, getting sober. And right. I kept thinking, God, that's amazing. It is me. amazing. And thank God, because you can, you can die young. Oh, absolutely. And I know a lot of people that have. Old timers, when I got sober, got sober in the 50s and 60s. And that was a different time. It was a lot more, I, th I would think, shameful. Mm. I mean, it was, it was heart attack time when somebody used the words, I'm an alcoholic. And I, I don't see as much of that anymore. It's touched everyone's life directly or indirectly. It's funny. I was talking to my mother and she said, well, you know, we didn't. We didn't hang out with any alcoholics. There were no alcoholics in our life. And I thought, oh, my God, are you kidding me? And I started going, what about this one? What about that one? Remember this story? Remember? And she finally stopped and said, God, I, I guess you're right. It just never, you know, we didn't think about that sort of thing. It was just, you know, so-and-so got overserved, or this one got a dirty glass or a bad ice cube, or they were doing exactly what I was doing. I came to in a hospital, and I mean a hospital. And I looked around, and the place is full of doctors and nurses. And I went, oh, I'm sick. No, I'm not a dummy. I was not a baby, and I was well-educated. But that came as a revelation to me. I don't know if I ever used or thought the word addict, but I knew I had to be high all the time. And then I came to in this hospital room, in a hospital bed, surrounded by doctors and nurses. I went, oh, schmuck, I'm sick. That explains a few things. So was that how, well, a moment of clarity is what they like to say. That was a big one for me. I mean, I think for me, you know, when I got there, they said, are you an alcoholic? And I said, oh, no. They said, I smoke weed. I smoke a lot of weed. And that, I think that's my problem. They said, so you're not an alcoholic? No. Well, do you drink every day? Yeah. More than, you know, two drinks a day? Well, yeah. You know, do you ever lose track of time? Oh, yeah. The 20 questions. You know, ever... Yeah. 
wound up in a different location from where you started out and don't remember how you got there? And I, yeah. <laughs> they just kind of giggled and went, okay, honey, that's blacking out and normal people don't do that. And that was the first time where I kind of thought, oh my God, you're right. I think that's when the moment of clarity came was just mm-hmm. sort of like going, I'm not here, you know, for for vacation. I'm not here because, you know, I got nothing better to do. I'm here because there's something wrong with me. I have a problem and I got to, I got to figure this out or I'm going to die. Your life immediate. I mean, you read this magazine in an apartment in New York city and got off a plane in Southern Cal. You know, when you, when you hit the brakes in a, on a train, a lot of stuff that's behind you that you've been doing doesn't go away in five seconds. And your life had been that of a gay guy in Manhattan in the crazy 80s yeah. and early 90s. Yeah. How does that figure into, you know, your disease and your decision to get sober, do you think? Well, I think it was just, you know, it was a lot easier to drink in New York and, and use because it was so readily available and the bars were open till four in the morning. And because it was such a big city, you could effectively hide and do what you wanted to do without people, you know, necessarily running into you. Here, where we live now, is a small town. I see people I know every day. Right. Huh. There, I could meet you on the Upper East Side for dinner, make my excuses, go home, change clothes, and be in the bar by 10 o'clock and stay there until, you know, 4 in the morning, and then go to an after party, whatever it was. Until I got smart enough to get a job as a bartender, a second job as a bartender so that I could, you know, just drink for free. Okay. My mama didn't raise no dummy. (laughs) (laughs) What was your first job? Uh, I worked for For a bank. Yeah, investments. Again, in the bonfire of the vanities. That was... High flying 80s. Yeah, that was... New York in the 80s was really New York. I haven't been back in a long time, but... Yeah, it was great. I mean, I worked for really good companies and got titles and salaries and secretaries and, you know, all of that stuff. It was awesome. Worked in Rockefeller Center and from the outside, it did look like here's a guy who's got his shit together, but little did they know. If they came to my apartment, there'd be no food, no electricity, you know. So you walked through a wormhole and found yourself in Southern Cal for how long? How long did you last there? 20 years. Ah, okay. 20 years, yeah, yeah, with no intention of it. It's not ever been one of my favorite places, but the sobriety is amazing. And I met my partner, and he was a you know, an L.A. boy, and his family was there, and so I just stayed. So you racked up decades yeah. of, of sobriety yeah. there. yeah. yeah. When I left there, actually, to come here, I think I had 20 or 21 years. Here is Santa Fe, by the way. Here is Santa Fe, sorry. Uh-huh. No, 20 okay. or 21 years. And I was thinking, oh, I'm going to get there and I'm going to be, you know, one of the old timers. And because I was used to yeah, the sure. meetings in we'll LA. show these yokels how yeah. it's done. Yeah, 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 yeah. I got here and I was like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm very, and I've got 21 years. And they'd pat me on the shoulder and go, that's cute. There's, a, there's a newcomer meeting and, on Wednesdays. Yeah, you you'll get come. 45 like I have. <laughs> <laughs> then the next person in line would be like, oh, I'm 53. And, you know, it was just like, oh, my God. How many years now? 28. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Mm. Amazing. Because I was a wreck when I got here. Didn't care if I lived or died a wreck. And And I was 32 and I got sober. I'm 63 now. The the things I've experienced and the things I'm going through now are the issues of a 63-year-old family guy, not a a addicted young single idiot in Hollywood in in the 80s and 90s. Although in my head, I'm still, you know... 28 or 30 <laughs> until 
You until know, you walk by a mirror. Until I walk by a but mirror or walk into a store with a friend and they go, oh, was that your father? Yeah. <laughs> Fuck you. Remember when waking up stiff was a good thing. So yeah, now listen. Exactly. Thank but you. But I'm here all week, folks. Where's my thing? Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> this is an anonymous show. Yep. And we can take stuff out. I'm in charge of editing. But I know you've, you're facing some um, difficulties physically and so on. Do you do you, any interest in talking about that in this venue or no? Sure. I don't mind. Um, you know, it's one of those it, as things. A so, as a sober guy facing this stuff. Uh, yeah. It's, you know, it's not easy all the time. Um, I got diagnosed with Parkinson's in 2017, I guess. I'm 61 now, so it was early. It typically doesn't affect you until you get to be in your 60s and 70s. So I, yay me, one of the lucky ones. <clears throat> and it's like anything else. It's a day at a time. I think what the program... What is what is Parkinson's? Yeah. Oh, it's... It has to do with the... Um, it's in your brain. I can't think of the name of it. It'll come to me in a minute. But anyhow, basically, it affects pretty much every aspect of your life. It, it makes walking more difficult. Balance is an issue. Shaking hands, you know. Uh, sometimes they, your feet freeze. So I'll be, you know, standing. And then you kind of want to go and move your foot. And it takes a minute to make the connections. And get the brain to tell the foot, you know, to do what you want it to do. It sounds like a betrayal, like your body's oh, it's betraying it's a total you. betrayal. It's a total, and, you know, you don't die from Parkinson's, you die with Parkinson's. And there are treatments that are available that make all the symptoms a lot more manageable. And, you know, I'm grateful that, that there are. And I know there are people who have lots, you know, who have a lot worse off than I do. And it's... It sucks, and I, I go through it like I do, you know, sobriety every day. It's it's okay, you know. What am I going to do today? How am I going to get through this? What mm -hmm. do I, what do I need? You know, suiting up and showing up in the program has taught me to suit up and show up for you know myself, and to take advantage of resources that are out there, and to ask people for help, and to you know share with other people who are going through similar things. I mean, I can't tell you how many people have called me over the course of the past couple of years and said, "I was just diagnosed with X," or you know, "I just found out that I'm this," and how do you deal with it? And it's some people refer to it as sort of like you know AA University, like. You've gotten through all of the, the basic stuff, and now you're getting into the real hardcore things. I, I don't know if I agree with that or not. I think it's just another opportunity that I get to work my program. It's another chance I get to sort of, you know, share my experience, strength, and hope with people and to, you know, do what I've learned to do here, you know. And is it fair? You know, No. What do they used to say in L.A.? Meetings all the time. The fair's at Pomona. The fair's in Pomona. That's what you want. <laughs> I haven't heard that in yeah. a long time. Yeah. Well, so, let me let me ask you this. Thank you for for that. Oh, sure. There was there was a, a an old chestnut I used to hear in meetings about comparing my insides with other people's outsides. Mm -hmm. I took that to mean this guy's handsome with a beautiful girlfriend in a hundred thousand dollar car and i'm not and then you find out what's really going on with this guy is not that great i think right. that's i think that was the, right. what i was supposed to hear from that saying you 
we're living like Elvis in New York City, <laughs> but but crumbling inside. Oh yeah. You ended up in a garage with no refrigerator, but sober. Right. You didn't really talk about if you were happy at that time. I remember my first job was, at, and I had had a pretty swinging ride in Hollywood as well a year before it all mm -hmm. went away. And my first little get sober job was in Texas working with dogs. And I was living in <laughs> the bedroom I grew up in. Uh, you know, I was in my 30s and I'm in that 12 foot bedroom with the sad little rock and roll posters on the yeah. wall that I'd had in high school. <laughs> like, God damn, how I have the mighty fallen. But. I'm telling you, I was happy because yeah. I was sober and I knew in, it was hard to explain to anybody. I so, was let, absolutely that way. So the, your insides, outsides were real different right before you got sober. And now to me, you got a partner, you got a nice pad, you got really cool dogs. You got, <laughs> you got a, to me, a very uh, interesting and fulfilling job that doesn't, isn't a beating. And, and uh, you've got a subversive sense of humor, which I depend on. <laughs> you and I start every phone conversation with a couple of dirty jokes and we get that out of the way and talk about what we need to talk about professionally. There was a young couple named Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> I, look, I actually lived on Nantucket, so bring it, bring it. So to me, your outsides look pretty good. And I know that it takes you a while to get up out of a chair and get out the door. What what up with that? Uh, insides, outsides these days. I mean, I honestly don't notice it that much anymore. I've gotten better at asking for help and for sort of saying like, hey, it's going to take me, you know, longer to get dressed and get there than normal or, you know, whatever it is. It's I, I accept the things I cannot change. You know, I can't do anything about it other than keep going to the doctor and doing what they tell me to do. And so the rest of it is just, you know, radical acceptance and not being afraid to ask for help and also not being afraid to not want to talk about things. It's funny, when you get diagnosed with something, the number of people that will come up and go, oh, my grandmother had that and it was awful and she spent the last 10 years of her life in horrible pain, you know, in a wheelchair and you're, I'm standing there thinking, thanks, Th Amy. Yeah, thanks, you know. <laughs> So I've just learned to sort of play my cards close to the vest when it comes to that sort of thing. And I, I understand. I don't talk to just anybody about it. And I also don't share about it a lot in big meetings just because it says, you know, we share in a general way. I have a sponsor. I have a cadre of, of sober friends that I can, you know, rely on and talk to. I have a bunch of sponsees. So I'm, you know, I'm pretty good when it comes to that sort of thing. You've helped me, and you've helped me today, and I love you. Thanks. I love you, too. It's a podcast called High Desert Sobriety, recorded at the Friendship Club Studios in Santa Fe. Available wherever you find your podcasts.